For Acts chapter 1, verse 4. The Bible tells us there as we begin, it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Well, we have our theme verse right there in verse 8. A sole purpose. That's what we're drawing from. We know in this particular passage, we saw that they were to remain in Jerusalem, and while they, they, were, to, while they were there, they were to be simply waiting, doing nothing but waiting on the Holy Spirit to descend. He assures them it will not be a long time. Just go ahead and wait till the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples ask about a kingdom, a kingdom in which Jesus Christ had prophetically was to rule and reign in. The throne of David was to be his seed, and he was to elevate Israel above and beyond all the nations of the earth. At that time, they were under the oppression of the Roman government and empire, but now they sought to be delivered and, and to be freed from their oppression and ultimately elevated as a nation. But Jesus said, no, it's not for you to know the time or the season. That's not what this is all about. But ye shall be witnesses unto me, he says. He says, you're going to wait on the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be witnesses unto me, and you're going to spread my truth and my gospel and my message around the world. Wow. And so we took the time to recognize and understand that throughout history, the Lord, even all the way back in Genesis, had said, you know what? I recognize and realize that I have a sole purpose. There's a reason to be at work. Oh, he had come to rest. Remember, he created the material world in six days, and we find him resting. But now mankind falls, mankind sins, and his work begins again, a work of redemption, a work of restoration. He now has a sole purpose to redeem fallen man. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we recognize and see that God is pointing to a day when Christ himself will come. In everything we saw, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple or the day of atonement or the scapegoat or whether it was Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. It all pointed ultimately to Christ who would come, die, be buried, and rise again the third day and provide redemption and restoration for all humanity. And then comes the church. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And Jesus Christ ultimately ascended back to be with the Father, as we read about here in Acts chapter 1. And he leaves them with a standing commission, a promise, and a command. You're going to receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The command, ye shall be witnesses. And boy, were they witnesses. They, too, now have received this sole purpose as a group of men and as the church in general they now have a sole purpose to redeem and restore fallen man. The day of Pentecost came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The Holy Spirit descended. The multitude heard the message in their own language and dialect. These disciples and these 
apostles had obeyed the master. They had waited as directed, and now they're ready to forge ahead with their mission. Endued with power, the church was able to fulfill its sole purpose and to be witnesses unto him and to take the good news of of redemption and restoration to the entire world now. The stage was set for the church to fulfill a sole purpose, and that's what we're still doing to this day. And that's why our theme, sole purpose. But now the real work had begun for the church, right? They were no longer waiting on the Holy Spirit to descend. They'd had a wonderful meeting. 3,000 souls were saved. But now the real work begins. And so we'll have a word of prayer and we'll begin talking a little bit about that work and taking a quick look at what transpired early on in the book of Acts. Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and work in our lives. We desperately need you. You're so good to us. We ask, Lord, that you would just bless this congregation, that, Lord, you would meet needs in each life. For every need is unique, it's special, it's different. But, Lord, you, being God, know exactly what our needs are. So, Lord, we ask that you walk these aisles and speak to our hearts through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. May we be open to you and your leadership May you fill me with your spirit and, Father, guide my tongue and help me to say those things which will please you. And, Lord, be with every listening ear. May they hear with spiritual ears. And may we all leave here saying, as the psalmist said, it was good when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now be glorified, Lord, we pray in these next moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had went together into the temple. A certain man who was lame from his mother's womb was outside the gate of the temple and asking for money. Now, again, this was a common practice in Bible times. It was not unusual in the least. There was no welfare programs. There was no public assistance in those days. Those who generally could not work relied upon the compassion and the generosity of others that had. And so here this man lied there, unable to do anything on behalf of himself. Matter of fact, being carried there each day and being left there so that he could ask for alms of those passing by into the temple. Peter and John now come by him and they fix their eyes upon him. And he asks them for something. Peter and John again look upon the man and Peter says, now you look at us and they're looking at each other and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. I'm sure about that moment that man starts to think to himself, oh great, I wonder what he's going to give me now. I need something that will sustain my life. I need something to enable me to buy some food. I've got to have some place to stay. I need a roof over my head. And This guy doesn't have any silver or gold, but he's going to give me what he has. That's scary, probably. And instead, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, the Bible tells us, and he leaped onto his feet and he walked. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you what, that's better than any gold or silver. That right there, my friend, is what we're all looking for, a miracle in our lives. Of course, this created a tremendous stir. It caused a number of people to gather around and 
Peter took the opportunity to proclaim the truth, to preach the word of God. And as usual, his message was very pointed and it was personal. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 14, please. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, we read that Peter says, But ye denied the Holy One and the just. Now remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jews now. And what we're going to find as well is that some of the leadership had also made their way into the crowd. And here he is now saying, But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murder to be granted unto you. Remember Barabbas? And he killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Isn't that an interesting phrase that he tacks on there? You denied the Holy One. You denied the Just One. You said no to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And you, you instead desired a murderer to be granted unto you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We've seen him alive. We know that he rose again. We know that he was more than a mere mortal man. He was God in flesh, Emmanuel, with us. Verses 17 and 18, look there. He goes on to say, and now, brethren, I want, I want that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. He says, listen, I, I understand what happened, and, and we have to agree that it did indeed take place. However, I am convinced that you didn't really know what you were doing. I think you did it through ignorance. I'm convinced of it. And I believe your rulers did it by ignorance as well and through ignorance. But, verse 18, those things which God before had shewed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. You may not have understood what you were doing. You may not have really figured out who he was and what he was all about. And, and you did it through ignorance. But can I tell you, God did it through providence. God had intended that Jesus Christ hang on Calvary, die, and shed his precious perfect blood, be broken and die, be buried, and rise again the third day. This was not coincidental. This was not by chance that he took his place on Calvary and died. You didn't place him there. Nobody put him there. He put himself there. And he knew all along it was coming. You did it through ignorance, but God did it through design. He reminds them that Jesus was the seed promised to Abraham in his preaching. And that through that seed, all the world and all the people of the earth would be blessed. But that the Jew himself, the Jewish nation, would first be blessed. And he tells them to turn from their sin to Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 25, please. He goes on to say, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abram, Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Man. Tell you what, he's laying it out there for him. He's making it clear. 
And the miracle and message not only got the attention of the multitude, but it also sparked interest in the priests and the leaders of Israel. They had gathered as well. They had been listening also. And check out Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five. Wait, wait I forgot a word there. Five thousand. I mean, honestly, can you imagine this? I mean, to tell you, he's preaching up a storm and he's pointing out that they as a people had placed the prince of life on the cross and murdered him, that they had rejected the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the one promised from the beginning, and now they needed to simply repent and turn to him. And the Jewish leadership had kind of filtered in and showed up and before it's over with, hey, take him into custody, shut his mouth, we're upset about this, we don't appreciate his message. I mean, we are grieved beyond grief. He's preaching through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We can't have him preaching about Christ. We can't have him telling the people that he resurrected the third day. Remember, we paid off those, those soldiers who were at the tomb. We told them to say that his body was stolen, even though it never was. We can't listen to this mess. He's going to wreck everything we've worked for. Again, these leaders would... Gladly have taken their lives if they could have. 5,000, that's more than even Pentecost. So the next day shows up. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Talking about that wonderful miracle that they did for that lame man. I mean, it created such a stir. So they say, by what power or by what name have ye done this? Remember now, their sole purpose is to be witnesses unto him. And they don't say, well, you know, we've been following the master and we caught on to a few tricks of the trade. No, they didn't do that. They didn't say, well, we had gone to seminary and school and we've learned how to preach and proclaim the truth effectively. And therefore, when we came across this man, we were able to psychologically address him and deal with him and ultimately heal him through... Uh, no, they didn't do that at all. Again, their mission was to be witnesses unto him. Their sole purpose was to exalt Christ to reach the world with the gospel, to see redemption and restoration for all mankind. And that's exactly what they did. Look at verse 10 through 12 of Acts chapter 4. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
Boy, he gives Christ, they give Christ all the glory. They say, listen, there's no power except that which is in heaven and in the power of our God. It's not in us. We don't have any power in our, of ourselves. It's all God. It's all Christ. It's all Him. <laughs> and ye shall be witnesses unto me. You have a sole purpose, Peter, John, apostles, men and women of God. A sole purpose to elevate the one who gave you that redemption and restored you into fellowship with God the Father. A sole purpose to reach, to revive a dead and dying world. Again, they would have gladly disposed of Peter and John. They'd have gladly taken out the leaders of this sect. But the people had seen the miracle and had been moved by the message Remember earlier, 5,000 had trusted Christ just a day ago. Even the leaders couldn't deny the miracle that had taken place. And they say themselves, look at Acts chapter 4, verse 16. They say, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We ourselves know that the miracle took place. We know and have seen that man laying there day in and day out and week in and week out and month in and month out and now he stands walking. God indeed did a miracle. What are we to do to these men? So they threatened them. They commanded that they not speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus Christ. But Peter and John had orders from above, didn't they? They were commanded to obey God himself. The commander-in-chief of all creation had given them orders already, and they responded accordingly. Matter of fact, they say, but for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What are they saying? We are witnesses. We are witnesses. You're telling us to be quiet. You're telling us to shelve it, to silence. No, we can't do that. We're only sharing what we have ourselves seen and heard. We're simply witnesses. We're not here to, to, to forge ahead in a movement. We're not trying to build some distinct group of men or women to combat Rome. We're not trying to do anything but just simply be a witness. You're telling us to stop being what we are, and that's witnesses, and that's what we've been commanded to be. Can I tell you, they were ordered to be witnesses, and so they were at any cost to themselves, by the way. And after being beaten and released, they report back to the church where they begin to pray for boldness. Isn't it interesting? They didn't go back saying, oh, Lord, protect us. Oh, God, keep us from going to jail. God, please don't let nobody slam a door in our face. I don't think I can handle it. They didn't do that, did they? The Bible tells us they went back, and as a church, they prayed for boldness. 
Isn't that amazing? Why? Because they had a sole purpose. Their purpose wasn't to live life and to to enjoy life. Their purpose was to get the gospel out, to be a witness. It wasn't just about them and their families. It wasn't just about them and their community. It wasn't about the social situation that they found themselves in. It was about Jesus Christ. Wow. Chapter 5 would be more of the same, by the way. The apostles went about doing Miracle after miracle and preaching the resurrection of Christ. And I want you to see the result. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 14. Here's the result now again. (laughs) They're just being witnesses. Acts 5, 14 says, And believers were the more added to the Lord. Excuse me, and believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. Multitudes of people. We have 3,000, we have 5,000, we have multitudes being saved. In Acts chapter 5, verse 19, look there, please. (laughs) I mean, this infuriated the Jewish leaders. And so what happens? They're taken into custody again. They're placed into a common prison. Notice Acts 5, 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said... Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm getting the distinct feeling that God's not as concerned about their well-being as he is about him being glorified. I'm just getting that distinct feeling here. But they have responsibilities to their family. They have responsibilities to their friends, their community. Yeah, I get all that. But it seems to me that their sole purpose is to be a witness unto him. All I'm saying is maybe we in America have lost sight as a church, as a people across this country of our sole purpose. Maybe we have forgotten why we've been left here Maybe we have gotten the impression somehow that God is all about being a big grandpa in the sky or a heavenly father that all he cares about is our well-being and our best interest and he wants us to be comfortable and extremely happy at every turn and at any cost. Don't don't we kind of live that way in our own lives? All I'm saying is, is why were we left here? It seems to me that the sole purpose that we're trying to remind ourselves of that indeed was the primary emphasis in the New Testament church ought to be something that ought to be a primary emphasis in this church and in churches around this country and around the world because the Bible says we are all to be witnesses unto him. It's not that other things aren't important. They are. It's just the question of, what to each of us is most important. That's it. There's always room for other things when we put him first. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So they were beaten the first time. <laughs> Acts 5.27, let's look at this real quick. And when they had brought them, we haven't got to the message yet, we're getting there. And when they had brought them, 
Do you hear that? I hope that wasn't one of our kids jumping. Oh, but anyway, okay, so, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in, the, in his name, this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they're beaten the first time. They're cast into, the, into prison the second time. And now they stood before these rabid leaders who would clearly rather them die or be killed than to look at them. How would Peter and the other apostles respond this time? I mean, three strikes, you're out, right? They better get with the program or they're in real trouble. Well, look at Acts 5.29. Here's how they respond. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, it wasn't just Peter. It sounds to me like they were pretty united in their, their goals. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and, to, and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Wow. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a, that's a power-packed group of verses. We understand what you're saying. We got the message, gentlemen. We know you don't want us to preach in the name of Jesus. We know you don't want us to emphasize the resurrection. We get it. But we can't be silent. We are his witnesses of these things. We must obey him. He called us to be witnesses. That's our first priority. These believers had the tools to succeed now. They were endued with power from above. The Holy Ghost indwelt and empowered them. The message had been outlined and lived out before their very eyes in person. The person of Jesus Christ. They were given a mandate, a commission, a command. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. They were obedient. And they continued to be obedient. Their resolve unshakable, their devotion unparalleled, their stand unwavering. Now I want you to see the message in Acts chapter 5. Look at verse 34, please. We won't be super long. I need to read a passage and give you three simple points. Very simple. Acts 5, 34. Then stood there up one in the council of Pharisee, named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law and had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little season. Remove them from the, 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 the room, please. Get rid of them. Please remove them at this point. We have some business to talk about. Verse 35, And he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain. And all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. 
After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, seems like they always are into that. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Wow. I like the, 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 the advice. He says, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this council or this work be of men, it will come to naught. I just gave you two examples, he says. This isn't the first time we've had a, a sect arise that ultimately wasn't snuffed out. But if it be of God, <laughs> you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Can I tell you this morning that you and I are living proof that this work is of God? And that neither this world or hell itself can overthrow it? For 2,000 years, Satan has sought to destroy the word of God, the faith of the believer and the church, but the truth just keeps marching on. See, nothing can stand in our way. No power on earth or in hell beneath can silence God's people. Let me give you three very quick reasons why. First, we have Jesus' word on it. Turn to Matthew 16, 13. Literally, one verse for every point. Okay, we're moving quickly. We have Jesus' word on it. Again, while on earth, he was speaking to the disciples and he speaks to, he asked the very important question. So let's note what the question was and how it was responded to and what ultimately he states concerning it. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, verse 14, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The whole context is not, the context has nothing to do with Peter. 
It has to do with this church. The church is not to be built on Peter. It's to be built on the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he indeed is the Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And he says here that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have Jesus' word on it. Again, the church, the body of Christ will prevail. The forces of evil may bombard her with all its might, but the church will prevail. Not only do we have Jesus' word on it, we have God's word with us. Matthew 24, 35. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. We have God's word with us. The Bible says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And we have a book called the Bible. And can I tell you, it's been a long time in, the use, in use. It's still a bestseller. It's still making headlines, so to speak. I'm telling you that we have had this book, and it is a more sure word of prophecy. Man, the Bible, the word of God. And it shows us that the church will still be here when Christ returns. Will he find faith on the earth when he comes back? I don't know. I'll already be with him. I'll be raptured out. There's just a couple of kids playing in the baptistry. Don't worry about it. I'll be raptured out when he comes in the sky. But when he returns to earth, guess what? I'm going to already be there. And you know, what I, you know how I know that? Because of the book. You know, I know that he lives in me, the book, the word of God. You know, I know that I have a home being prepared for me in heaven, the word of God. You know, I know he's going to provide for me and protect me and care for me as his will provides from the word of God. I have the precious promises in this book, and so do you. Man, I'm telling you what, the church is going to prevail because we have Jesus' word on it. We have God's word with us. And number three, we have God's spirit in us. Turn to 1 John 4, 4, please. We have God's Spirit in us. In 1 John 4, 4, the Bible says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What a wonderful truth. Greater is he that's in us, Christ in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, than he that's in the world. I don't know, this thing about being a witness, man, it's a tall order. It is, but we will prevail. Oh, I'm not saying that there won't be beatings, and I'm not saying that there won't be trials and tribulation. I'm not saying that we may not be called before the magistrates. I'm not telling you that anything different could happen than what we see in the New Testament, but God gave them grace, and God enabled them to prevail in the midst of all of it, and he'll do the same for us. You have to believe it. Why? Because we have Jesus' word on it. Because we have God's word with us, and we have God's spirit in us. So we began this work way back. God began it way back in Genesis. Having a sole purpose 
He provided image after image after image of his son Jesus who would ultimately come and offer himself the perfect lamb of God, the only acceptable sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Jesus would come, live a sinless, perfect life. He would fulfill the law. And then he would take his place on Calvary and he would pay for the sin, the sin debt of all humanity. He'd rise from the dead, confirming his deity and his identity. The Jew, having rejected Christ, would be temporarily placed on a shelf as a nation. The church, however, would now be the tool that God would use to fulfill his sole purpose in the world. The tool to ultimately bring about redemption and restoration of mankind unto himself. We don't do the saving, but we take the saver to the world. And having received Christ into our lives, experiencing him firsthand daily, and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are witnesses unto him. See, no power on earth or in hell beneath can silence God's people. We're his witnesses. Come rain or shine, we must continue to point a dark and lost world to Jesus Christ. In 1994, the New York Times reported that graffiti from the 1800s was discovered by workers renovating the Washington Monument. It was quite a different tone from much of the graffiti that we would find on walls and on rail cars and street signs in those days. Here's what it said. Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduing than this. Isn't that amazing? Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this, than this monument, the Washington Monument. Isn't that amazing? What a perspective. George Barna points out a number of years ago, and this was way back in 1998. He said the challenge, and he said along with that challenge, he said 100 million adults attend church weekly. We know for a fact that's less now. I mean, it's much less actually. Potentially up to 20% less. At this point, he said in 1998 that 100 million adults attend church weekly, most for 10 plus years. 49% not even believers. So half of those weren't even believers. According to receiving, accepting Christ alone by faith, there were so many that claimed to be Christian who did not adhere to that biblical truth. The average Christian in America today, he said, will die without ever having shared his faith in Christ with another person. Again, how many less Christians are there today than in 1998? How many more believers today live their lives without ever once sharing their faith in Christ with another than back then? I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem that we're becoming more bold with our faith. It seems we're 
basically conforming ultimately and many times to the culture and the society in which we live. We are trying not to make waves. We don't want to offend anybody under any circumstance, under any cost. But can I tell you that that's impossible? No matter how big we smile, no matter how much we care, just like the apostles in the early church that shared him found themselves at the end of a rod or behind a fist or in prison. As much as they sought to only share this truth for the well-being and benefit of their countrymen, they received wrath instead. You can do your best to be kind, smile, and present Christ in a very careful manner, and you ought to do those things. But we have got to be witnesses. It is our sole purpose. We must share Christ with the world we live in. This generation needs a witness unto him. Will you be that witness? Will any of us go to our grave not once sharing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with another person? God forbid. Heaven forbid. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth, sole purpose. I want to encourage you to make his purpose your sole purpose. And as a church, may we never lose sight of why we truly exist today. The big production's a wonderful thing coming up this weekend. But it'll mean nothing if the goal is not to see him be glorified. Him to be witnessed of. What a waste of time it would be to simply entertain a crowd and not give them the opportunity to be saved. We are not a social organization. We're a spiritual organization. We are the church, an organism. We are the bride of Christ. We've been left with a commission, a command, a sole purpose. May we be careful to follow through and obedient, to be obedient in that purpose. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had around your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would bless us and help us. Father, we recognize and realize, Lord, that in the world in which we live, it can get so busy and hectic that we can lose sight of some of the more fundamental and basic things that we as believers are to embrace and espouse in our life. Pray, Lord, you'd help us to be very aware of our sole purpose. And as we even make our way into the big production and then on into our spring campaign, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be knit together as a church to truly reach the world with the gospel at any cost. Father, today in our crowd, there may be those who have yet to receive and accept Jesus as their Savior. Oh, they believe in a God. They would even say they do, but 
Jesus Christ died for them and paid for their sin. He rose again the third day. And you said, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Lord, help them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and become part of the family of God today, if they haven't already. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.